Welcome to uh, Sierra Bible Church. Happy Mother's Day. It seems like you should celebrate that a little bit more than that. Happy Mother. Uh, if you're a mom this morning, congratulations. It's awesome. Uh, welcome. My name is Jesse. If uh, I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet you, just want to welcome you. And if someone invited you, it's because they love you and they think that uh, what's going on here is a beautiful thing and, and can speak into your life. So glad to have you. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ruth again this morning, so uh, if you've been with us, you know, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. One of the ushers would love to hand you a Bible that you can read along with us. If you use an app or anything like that, that's great too. We just want to make sure you're reading his word. And uh, this morning, I get to do another baby dedication. So I'm going to ask, uh, <laughs> did he clap? That's awesome. So I'm going to ask the uh, Ozzises to come on up. So if you guys haven't met uh, Zach and Laura, this is Zach and this is Laura. And uh, they're tremendous people. We love them, part of our family. Laura helps lead uh, a women's study that many of you participate in. She does a wonderful job. She's a great teacher. Both of them are just theologically astute. They're really a great addition to our church to have as part of our family. They strengthen us and encourage us. And, and so to dedicate their kids is an awesome thing. And uh, so this is little Lucas here. And we're going to dedicate Lucas. And how we do this is we use, we use language, covenant language, when we do this. And the idea uh, is, is that we believe that when you enter into a covenant, you're making a promise. So that's covenant just is a big word for a promise. And that promise that they're making before you as their church family is they're promising to raise Lucas according to the word of God and according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're doing that before you, that you would hold them accountable and that you would help them in that process. And then also, we want you, for those of you who are church family, to covenant back with them to help hold them accountable and help them to raise their kids according to the gospel, because we do this as a community. And so uh, the way that we do this is I just simply ask Zach and Laura, do you promise to raise little Lucas according to the gospel and the word of God before your church family? We do. And church, those of you who are, are family with them and, and you know them and you want to enter into that covenant, I would ask you as a church as well to do the same thing. To say, I do. So church, would you covenant, would you promise with Zach and Laura to help them in this journey to raise Lucas according to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the church said, yeah. we do. All right. For Now you're married forever. Um, <laughs> I do that joke every time. They always laugh. So let me pray for Lucas. And we get this from the... Oh. <laughs> Try one it's more okay. time. It's okay. This is, is Jesse. It's okay. Just peel yep. them off. It's My kids do the same thing. Oh. Here, if I hold them like that, there we go. All right, yeah, escape. <laughs> Let's pray for, for Lucas. Lord, we thank you so much for Lucas. We pray that you uh, will journey with him, Lord, that you'll bring him to salvation, that you would be with Zach and Laura as they raise him according to your truth. And pray, Lord, that you would journey with us as a church and encourage us to do the same. We give him into your hands. We ask for you to bless him, to care for him. Lord, to, to do everything possible, Lord, that he would hear the truth, that he be raised according to grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <laughs> Love you guys. I, it's okay. I'll never do it again. I promise. Give me a hand. <clears throat> so um, if you haven't been here, we've, we've been journeying in this book for a few weeks. And we saw uh, in chapter 1, if you remember, a gal by the name of Naomi who was married to Elimelech, uh, two Israelites who were living in Bethlehem, God's place. And there was a famine in Bethlehem. They made a, a horrible decision to leave Bethlehem, the place of bread, uh, God's homeland, to go to Moab, which was a place of false idol worship, human sacrifice. Uh, they had two sons, Elimelech and Naomi. Those two sons married two Moabite women. Elimelech dies. The two sons die, and Naomi is left with just who, her two daughter-in-laws. And then after 10 years of famine, we saw last week that she returns to Bethlehem with Ruth. Ruth is the only one who makes the journey. Her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, goes back to Moab to find a husband, and uh, Ruth comes with Naomi into what is the beginning of the harvest. And we saw chapter 1 started with a famine, 
uh, ended with the beginning of harvest time. And on Mother's Day now, we, we are, and I think it's appropriate because the ladies have been desiring and asking, when are we going to meet Boaz? When is the kinsman redeemer coming? So I've titled the message this morning, Hey Boaz. Um, the ladies have been waiting for, uh, for this moment where Ruth uh, comes across the field of Boaz, meets Boaz. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And, and I know for some of you, you're here this morning because it's Mother's Day, and we're just really glad to have you. In fact, uh, we know that on Mother's Day, typically, uh, th- you know, moms get their way. They get the husband to church. They get the kids to church. I was at Home Depot yesterday, and I was getting help from two employees, which was, like, really crazy because it was busy there. But I had two employees helping me because I needed it. I'm that, I'm that good at, you know, doing house stuff. And, uh, and one of them asked me, they said, oh, what are you doing for Mo- Do you have any plans for Mother's Day? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to church. And uh, the guy goes, oh, mom's idea, right? <clears throat> I said something like that. <clears throat> and uh, so we're glad to have you here. Um, and we're, we're just going to see this beautiful love story uh, played out, especially over the next few weeks, and we'll be just introduced into it this morning. And so if you would, uh, I would encourage you, uh, we... We have a deep honor for God's word because we believe it's him speaking to us. I would encourage you to stand with me this morning if you were able to as we read from Ruth chapter 2. <clears throat> now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him and whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young women is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what, what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Lord, teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, the first thing I, w- I want you to see here is uh, a couple things. One One is I want you to see that what we're reading here and what we'll read as the story progresses is God answering prayer. If you remember, Naomi prays in chapter 1, verse 8, to the Lord for her two pagan daughter-in-laws. She asked the Lord from chapter 1, verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, and the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her own husband. She prayed literally for these women to find a husband, and to find rest. We're now entering into chapter 2, which, which is that answer to prayer. And I, I mentioned last week, we talked about the idea of the harvest, right? Chapter 1 began with a famine, deep hardship, lots of death, and then it ends with the, the beginning of the harvest. And so we're entering into the field. This is a time for Israel that is, is, a, is a great time of celebration. So when the harvest came, people would be singing in the field, People would be happy. They would be smiling, right? It's, it's been, if you will, a long winter, and now the grass has returned. And people are celebrating that. They're singing it. And you can see that in Boaz as he steps out into the field, and he's saying, Lord, bless you. And his workers are saying back to him, God bless you. And they're just, it's a happy, celebratory time. And it's because Naomi has prayed. And I shared last week, as we step into the harvest, in order to reap that harvest, in order to experience, experience you know, stepping away from famine and into a field of blessing, we must have widespread prayer from our people. Amen? Now, I see you nodding your head. You say, yes, 
But I don't want you to nod your head just on Sunday. I want you to nod your head every day. Because we need, we're desperate for a new start. All of us are desiring and wanting redemption and renewal. And the the reality is, is that God connects renewal with prayer. I would argue that we are, as a culture, distracted and anxious. Anyone deal with anxiety this week? Don't lie to me. I know you have because you're American. That's the American lifestyle, to be anxious. If, if many of you this morning, I, w- I would ask you, how are you doing? How has your week been? And your response would be busy. That's our typical response now. We, we're all busy. We're all doing stuff. Any parents of multiple children here? You're not busy at all, right? Kids, kids don't take any effort. They don't take any time. We're busy. And what prayer does is it, it, it draws us out of the busyness, and it puts us in a great place of peace. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. <clears throat> and I want you to see the instruction here that Paul gives as he prays. He's praying for his church. He's praying for his people. And he says this, Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, and whom every one in the family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that, listen to the prayer now, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Did you hear the prayer? He prays. He says, listen, listen, you pray. I'm praying for you that you would know, that you would understand that God's fullness dwells in you. And then if, you, if you're looking at verse 20, notice what he says, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we could ever think or ask. Do you know God has the ability to answer your prayers in a greater fashion than you actually have for expectancy? Do you know what I mean by that? You pray one thing and God's got something bigger in mind. I mentioned uh, with permission, um, the uh, Michaela and Russ Grant story this, uh, in the first service. And Michaela and Russ, she, actually, we were at a birthday party yesterday, and, and Michaela came to me, and she said, you know, last week's message really spoke to me, and, and, and it just it, it moved me, and I want to share with you why. And I'd heard the story before, and she just was sharing it again, that she went through a season, her and Russ, where they, they couldn't have children, that her womb was barren. And she said at that time, it was tr- a tremendous uh, struggle for her. It brought her to a great place of depression. If you remember Naomi, when she enters into Bethlehem, they say, is this Naomi? Naomi means blessed one. Is this, is this the one who's blessed? And Naomi says, don't call me the one who's blessed. Don't call me that anymore because I went away and now I'm empty. I was full, but now I'm empty. Call me Mara because now I'm bitter. And she was sharing with me, Michaela was, that she had a, at that time was Mara. She was bitter. She was angry at God. She actually said to me that she was so filled with angst that when her husband was away on fire duty, that she would stay awake the entire time because she was so nervous about going to sleep. She just felt that God was against her. She was struggling with fear and anxiety and depression. Anyone relate to that this morning? And she said, she said to me that, that once they went into the foster process, for those of you who don't know, Russ and Michaela have adopted three beautiful children, two boys and one girl. And on the heels of that, what they've what they've done now that they've had these children in foster care and they've loved them and cared for them is they started a ministry that is under our umbrella called Foster the Sierras. And through that ministry, they have blessed many families in our church, walked with families in the foster process, as well as other churches in the area. They've, they've helped them in the foster process and the adoption process because it is a hard thing to do. Some of these children come from parents who were drug addicts. And some of the kids still wrestle with some of those things. And Michaela just said to me, she said, she said if, I, if I had had my way, I would have never been able to have blessed all of these families and have the blessing of my three children that I have now. You know what God's done for her in that is as he's going to do for Naomi and Ruth is he has gone above and beyond anything 
that they could ever think or imagine. Can anyone say amen to that this morning? Has anyone wrestled with that or, or seen that? Maybe you're in that point in your life right now where you're wondering, what is God doing? I'm bitter. I don't understand why it's going this way. Can we just trust the God of heaven in his fullness that as we pray and we worship him, he's going to answer prayer? Now, the good news is we know that Naomi, Naomi is going to be uh, redeemed along with Ruth. Ruth is, she's in the field. Now, before I, before I talk about her being in the field, I want you to see something about Scripture here that's really important. <clears throat> there's, there's kind of a, a device that is used in Scripture oftentimes to give us different perspectives. It's kind of like a scene in a movie, right? You get one perspective from one person in, in the movie, and then, and then you step over and you get another perspective of the movie to give you a whole picture of the Bible. There's three main views when you're reading Scripture that you have to keep in mind, Okay. One view is God's view, right? They're, they're the view that God is at work behind the scenes in ways that we could never think or imagine. So, so she doesn't know it, but we do. God's doing something in the midst of tragedy. He's doing something in the field. He's doing something in the Old Testament. We know he's underneath everything. The other view is the human view. Right? We, we can relate with the character. You can relate with the bitterness of Mara, or you can relate with, with being a widow, or you can relate with the hardship and the difficulty. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. We, too, are involved in the drama of God's unfolding purposes. Frequently, we cannot understand what God is doing, but in the Scriptures, God is saying to us, as he said to John in the book of Revelation, come up here to this vantage point for a moment and see what I'm doing. As if the Bible as a whole is saying, come up here and see how God is on the throne, working out his perfect purposes, and view things in your own life and times from his own point of view. God allows us to, to get into heaven with him, if you will, and see exactly what he's doing from that perspective. Then there's a third perspective. In the Old Testament, you only had the first two. You had the character view, and you had God's view. God's doing something the character doesn't fully know it. We might know it because we're reading the narrative. And then, and then you've got the character view, God's view, the character view. Then there's the gospel view. This is really important when you read Scripture. In Scripture, there's what's called um, the, the meta-narrative. Anyone familiar with that term? I, I know uh, Biola is, right? Um, anyone who's been, been to school, you know that the Bible is what's called a meta-narrative, the mega-narrative, an overall story. The whole Bible... All 66 books are about one story. The best way I can illustrate this is, is all of the Avenger movies. Okay, you've got like three Thor movies, 10 Spider-Man movies, right? You, got, you, you have all of these different Marvel movies that are all part of one big story. And if you know, and I'm geeking out here a little bit, so forgive me if you hate Marvel. And if you hate Marvel, it's okay. We'll pray for you and we'll... we'll We'll get you into the weird comic book world. And, and so anyways, if you, if you remember, at the end of every Marvel movie, right when the credits start, what do you do? Don't leave. Don't you dare leave. Because there's something at the end that will give you a peek into the meta-narrative of what's happening with the Avengers. Every Marvel movie is building towards the big Thanos story endgame, which I haven't seen yet, so don't give it away if you have but it's accumulating that one big story. Every single, it's like 800 Marvel movies all working towards one movie, right? And everyone's like, I can't believe it's over. It ain't over. They're going to come up with another one. Don't worry about it. There's more coming. The Bible's the same way. All 66 books are, are all about the meta narrative of the redemption of humankind in Jesus Christ. So we read everything with the gospel in view, with Jesus in view. There's a great, uh, a great illustration from uh, a book called Soul Winner. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote it. Any, anyone else read it? Have you read it? It's kind of a hard read. Some of Spurgeon's stuff's a hard read. <clears throat> it was one of the very first books I had to read in pastoral training. And there's a, a great quote in there that Spurgeon, Spurgeon mentions. He says, he says there's a minister, an old minister. And this old minister was listening to a young minister preach. And after preaching, the young minister went to the old minister. And he said to the old minister, what did you think of my sermon? And the old minister was silent for a while. And then he looked at the young man. He said, I didn't like it at all. 
And the young man said, why? Listen, listen to how Spurgeon writes it. The man says, no. And, and he says, why? And the old man said, if I must tell you, I didn't like it at all because there was no Christ in your sermon. The young man said, no, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ in the text. Oh, said the old minister. But do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Wherever I, whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you were preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get at him. So we, my brethren, must have Christ in all of our discourses. Whatever else is not in them, there ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Take care that it is so when you are called to preach before Her Majesty the Queen, or if you have to preach before a chairwoman or a chairman, still always take care that there is the real gospel in every sermon. Amen? This is the idea that every message should, should be more about what has been done in Christ than what must be done. Right? We're not here to give you Ten Commandments. You already got those. You know why the Ten Commandments exist? To show you you can't do them. The whole purpose of the Ten Commandments is so you look at them and go, can't do it. Well, who can? Jesus can. And so we have all of this in view. Now remember, that this beautiful love story is moving towards the lineage of Jesus Christ. Boaz is in the field. He, he sees Ruth. The two will get married. They'll have a son, and through that son will come Jesus Christ. That's the meta narrative. Someone said to me this morning, they said, I never understood why Ruth was actually in the Bible. Why does that story exist? It's just a love story. And all the ladies are like, it's in there because it's a love story. <laughs> well, it's in there because it pushes us towards Jesus. And now, first thing I want you to see, right? Jesus answers prayer. God answers prayer. And we have to keep the gospel in view in all things. Now, Ruth, we will see, meets Boaz. Here, the setting has been set. The smell of grain is in the air. The harvest is plentiful. The people are celebrating God. It says literally in chapter 1, God is, is revisiting Bethlehem. And Ruth, what she was doing as a Moabite woman, an alien of the land, she was gleaning in the field. Now, Boaz, who's the owner of one of these fields, these fields were perfectly partitioned. If you've ever you know, flown over Texas, you can get an idea if you look down at what it would have looked like. The, the lines would have been perfect and drawn. Some men would have owned multiple fields, some one. Uh, Boaz owned multiple, partitioned out. His name would have been somewhere, so people knew this was Boaz's field. And the harvesters would go through, and they would gather the wheat and the grain in bundles. And they would carry these bundles, and we're told that Ruth is following them, gleaning from the bundles. Essentially what would happen is that they would drop, on occasion, they would drop the wheat. They would drop the grain. And what was left over, Ruth would come, uh, or, or an alien would come, a sojourner, a poor person. Leviticus says this was, this was the right of the people who, who were the fatherless or, or who were widowed, that they could glean from the field. And so she was grabbing, it says, if you look, notice her work ethic. How long did she do it for? Just to take a little bit of rest. From morning till night, Ruth is, is doing what she can to provide for herself and to provi provide for the widow Naomi. Naomi's not gleaning. We're not told why. It's assumed that, that maybe she's too old. She can't do it physically. So Naomi is relying on Ruth to provide for her, and she's, she's grabbing this grain. This is the equivalent of a poor person walking around the city and grabbing aluminum cans out of the trash to provide for themselves. It was a, a way to, to work. And we come across, as she's doing this, we, we come across these the uh, Boaz stepping into the field and he notices her. She must have been attractive. There's something about her. But before that, we, we need to see the way that Boaz is labeled a worthy man. You can see that just in the text in that, that he is respected by his workers. He's in the field. Lord bless you. And his workers respond back with a respectful, loving response. Anybody want that kind of boss? And as, she, as he's out there, he notices 
Who is this woman? A couple things about Boaz. From the first time Boaz opens his mouth to his very last words spoken in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, Boaz's tone exudes compassion, grace, and generosity. His name literally means standing in strength. You remember the day in which this book was written, the days of the judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. People were sinning left and right, and we see Boaz standing strong, honoring God, honoring his workers, and now soon to honor this woman. As we, as, as, as we see this word worthy here is a Hebrew word that has a lot of different meanings. But, but as I, before I give you these meanings, I, I, wanna, I want to impress upon you that Boaz, remember the meta-narrative, this is why I mentioned it, Boaz doesn't exist in the text just so you can say how great Boaz is. Boaz is a flash forward. He's, he's a shadow of Jesus. See, th- there was a tradition in the Old Testament that when a widow was widowed, she could marry a relative if there was one available, and that relative would marry her, give her children, and give her an inheritance. Okay? And, and that was called a kinsman redeemer. Everyone say redeemer. Right? Redemption. To buy back. To purchase. So he's, he, this kinsman redeemer is pointing us to the ultimate kinsman redeemer in Jesus Christ. And so Boaz, who's this man of strength or this worthy man, it mentions a couple things. There's some connotations with his name. The first one, uh, some of your translations might say it like this. Boaz was a wealthy man. He was a man of means. He had the ability to redeem. Now, this is the kind of man you want to marry, right, ladies? It's kind of a case study for single ladies here. You want to be a worthy man. You want to be a strong man. He's, he's got to have money. I'm just joking. Sort of, right? Better have a job. I know whoever marries my daughter better have a job. God, though, as we point towards God in this, in the meta narrative, God is wealthy. Listen to some of these passages in the description of God. See, in, in sermons, we have to just declare good things about Jesus. It's a way to worship him, to just tell him what he already knows. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. What does he own? Everything. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, drives it even further. For every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves on the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. He says, I know every bird. I know them intimately. I know their names. The Bible tells us he knows every hair on our head. For those of you who are materialistic, Haggai tells us from God's mouth, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. That's just the verse. Do you know your money isn't yours? Did you know that? I know that's a popular thing to say. You own nothing. You own nothing. I tell my kids that every time they fight over something. It's mine. It's mine. I go, none of it's yours. I own it all. I'm letting you stay here. You own nothing. In regards to to those who are saved and redeemed, the Bible says we are his bride. He is the shepherd. We're the sheep. He's the father, and we are sons and daughters. He is the vine, and we are the branches. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, you, as a Christian, if you have come to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He redeemed you, and he purchased you. See, what God has done for us is quite amazing. Again, as we picture, Ruth is in the field. She's picking the grains, the leftovers, the aluminum cans, and and Boaz comes and redeems her. He purchases her. He brings her to himself. God has done the same for you and I. For those of us before Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we were doing. We were spiritually in the streets, picking up aluminum cans, just grabbing junk from the garbage, from the world, hoping that it will fulfill us. I hope this will make me happy. No, I hope this will make me happy. I hope this will make me happy. And then Jesus came to us in our pitiful spiritual state, and he said, no, 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 no. I don't want you picking out of the garbage. I want to make you a co-owner of a field. 
Amen? I want to bring you into my household, and I want to give you my inheritance. I don't want you walking around on the streets spiritually in the trash anymore. He was a worthy man. He was also capable of great protection. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Look at verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and don't rebuke her. Jump all the way down to verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. First of all, notice the great generosity of him. Not only does he say, let her glean, he says, hey, hey guys, out of the bundles you've collected, I want you to grab some out of the bundles, and I want you to give them to her. I read a moment ago, if you look at the text, that Boaz actually says, hey, when the men, when the men pull out of the well, the water from the well, you take water from those men so you will not thirst. You know why that's a big deal? Because it was customary for women to pull from the well so men would drink. Remember the woman at the well? She's coming and collecting so that she can give drink to those in her village. It was the customary job for a woman to draw from the well. So it is quite extraordinary for Boaz to say, the men will draw for you. Boy, she must have been attractive, huh? He is, he, the, the name for Boaz shows us he's, he's wealthy. It also shows us that he's capable of protection. In fact, we see here Boaz is instituting the very first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace. Now, though the Bible said, the Bible said you, you, you can go and collect in the field, and he told the Israelites that in Leviticus, allow them to do this, allow the sojourner to do it. We know through history that Israel was not very good at obeying God's commandments. So Boaz says there, don't go into another field because if you do, you're going to get raped. That's what he's saying. So stay in, in my field. And God would say the same thing to you and I. I will protect you. I will guard you. I know that what you're going through is hard. But remember, I'm, I'm working in the background. I'm, I've got purposes for you that you don't even know. I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't ever think or comprehend. In addition to that, he was a man who was worthy enough to walk with his workers. Something that we see in God continually. Genesis 3, 8, God walked with Adam and Eve. Deuteronomy 23, we see God walked with the nation of Israel. And then in John 1, in Jesus Christ, we see that God tabernacles, walks with his people. Can we celebrate this morning that Jesus is walking with us in life, even if you can't see or sense that he is there? I'm thankful this morning that he is in the room with us now. I'm thankful that he's at home where you're at. When I, when I can't counsel somebody or, or guide them into truth, I'm thankful that God is there with them. That, that's the beautiful side to Christianity. We have a God that is with us wherever we go. Emmanuel, God with us. Boaz is in the field. He's with his workers. He's, he's with uh, Ruth. Now look at verse 3, though. You have a very interesting language here that, that we miss at first. Look at verse 3. Let me read it. <clears throat> so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, here's the word, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to the field. Here's the, the original Hebrew actually reads something like this. She chanced by chance to come to the field of Boaz. She chanced by chance, just sheer luck, right? That's another way to say it. By luck, she came across the field. The author, the author has languaged it the way it has in the Hebrew, not that you would go, oh, she's really lucky. She should go to the lotto. No, it's hyperbole. The author is trying to get the reader to see that this is a, a striking understatement. The author's intent is that you'd be reading it and go, what? There's no accident here. Silly author. That's the idea. The idea is for, for, for him to be pointing towards us and say, look, look, God is behind the scenes. He's doing something. And it's also for us as we read it from our vantage point that we would look at the accidents in life more closely, seeing God's divine hand at work in our life. 
Amen? Divine accidents happened to happen by luck to happen. That's, that's how I got married. By happenstance. Pure luck. And those of you who know my wife, you know I married up. How'd you get her? Ah, chance. I got lucky. And in fact, the, uh, seeing God's hand at work in my life, I, I remember, I, I've shared this story briefly, and, and the women love it when I share it. The men are like, whatever, they don't care. But when, when I was in San Diego, when I was single, I was teaching a college study on Sunday nights uh, in University Town Center, right by USD. And it was going well, going great. And, uh, and we were hoping to see that church maybe become a church plant in the future. I thought maybe that was where I was going to be for a long time. And, and as a single guy, I was, always, I was always on the lookout, always on the prowl for a good Christian uh, woman. My, my, some of my coworkers used to tell me, Jesse, you can't hit on your sheep. And, uh, and there, was a, there was a girl there who used to come up to me after almost every single sermon, and yes, it was Allie, and she'd come up to me and she would say, why did you say that? How come you taught it this way? And, uh, and I thought, I was like, man, I, in my mind after several weeks, I was like, leave me alone. <laughs> but Allie was there on Sunday nights and she was helping. She was super faithful. She loved Jesus, and I just never thought anything, anything of her. And then one day, I was in the parking lot, and we had locked the doors and closed up, and I was talking with my friend, and Allie was one of the last people to leave, and she was walking uh, towards her car away from us, and my buddy said to me, Allie's hot. And I said, yeah. It was, it was like God lifted a veil. Uh, and then, and then my, my, my friend, he says to me, she's mine. And I was like, no, she's mine. <laughs> and if you're listening, I won. <laughs> Just by chance. And God, I, I can tell you that story because I know that God was behind the scenes the whole time doing something in my heart, doing something in Allie's heart to bring us together. God is in the background in every single scene of your life no matter how common it is, no matter how small it is, no matter how significant it is, God is working in your life. So I don't know what your story is right now, but I do know that God's working in it. That's part of that view of the redemptive history and the meta-narrative. There's, there's this huge meta-narrative of Jesus, and Jesus loves us so much so that he folds us into the story of redemption. You aren't the Bible, you aren't inerrant, you aren't infallible, but you're folded into the redemptive story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings you into his own love story. This is the beautiful thing. God says, I'm, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. I love you, and I'm gonna bring you into my story. You're part of something so much bigger than just your life. Come on. This has to be good news for you because some of you, some of you struggle with insignificance that you're a nobody, that you're never going to have a, a, a big purpose in life. No one's going to recognize you. You're not insta-famous, right? But you are. In God's kingdom, you are. This is why life is so incredibly valuable. You're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason. And it's to give God greater glory to fold you in to his overall story. I want you to notice something interesting here. It's mentioned in a couple different places in Scripture. It's here in verse 5. Right, Boaz is out in the field. He's a good guy. He's a worthy man. He's a strong man. And he asks his, his workers, who's the girl? And an unnamed servant says, an unnamed servant says, oh, that's Ruth. She came into town not that long ago with Naomi. She's a Moabite. Now, I want you to also note something that's really important to note. It's a short story. So every word really matters in a book like this. And you'll notice at this point in time, you'll notice that every time Ruth is mentioned, it's mentioned that she's a Moabite. It's mentioned multiple times. And you have to ask yourself as the reader, why does he keep saying this? Why is he being redundant? He's saying it because he's letting you know that, that this woman is unlovable in this community. There's racial tension here. Oh, she's, she's a Moabite woman. You don't want to really have anything to do with her. She's just Moabite. She's a nobody. And, and what's interesting, though, is the servant who's unnamed points, 
points her to Ruth and says, or says to, to Boaz, look, this is, this is who she is. You might remember another unnamed servant in Genesis chapter 24. Remember the story. Isaac is looking for a bride, and an unnamed servant is sent in Genesis 24 to find a bride for Isaac. And likewise, this morning, we can trust that there's another unnamed servant who's seeking out a bride for Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. It's to point us to the reality, again, that that God is behind the scenes working in your difficult situation, working in the goodness of your life. The Holy Spirit's there. And aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit came to you, wooed you to Jesus, and brought you out of the trash cans of life and into the great field and the harvest of his glorious church? Come on. Come on. Are you not happy about it? Are Are you not not excited that, that the Holy Spirit is still active today, pursuing people to himself. This is why we say, hey, listen, man, you cannot, un, you cannot outrun God. Stop running. He's going to get you. Remember Jonah? Where are you going, Jonah? Honk. Back to Nineveh. I, 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 I am just so thankful that God has sent his unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit, the behind-the-scenes behind-the-scenes part of the Trinity that is constantly pointing us to Jesus Christ. John chapter 16, verse 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he'll declare it to you. Good news. Hey, parents, anybody praying for their children? God answers prayer. Holy Spirit's after him. Right? Any, any grandparents praying for grandkids? Any grandparents praying for, for their kids still? still pray- Man, I'm praying for my kids every day. Lord, help me not kill them and send them to you soon. Right? <laughs> help me, Lord. God is at work behind the scenes. And there's... There's a correct response to all of this. You see, you see, when we see that God has wooed us to himself, and we see that, the, that, that he has folded us into the redemptive history and that he's working through Boaz to point us to the ultimate kinsman redeemer that is Jesus Christ, I think that we have to hear what Jesus would say to us as Boaz says to Naomi. Naomi, listen, go nowhere else. You see it? Look at verse 8. Don't go to another field. Don't chase after false gods and false idols. Don't worship and run after things that won't satisfy. Quit playing in the trash can of the world. Naomi, stay near me. Notice the language he uses also in verse 8. Instead of calling her a Moabite woman, he calls her daughter. Because that's what Jesus does for us. He makes us children of himself. And he gives us a new identity. We've been talking about identity in this whole book. Naomi goes from blessed to being unnamed to bitter. Maybe that's your journey. And now we see the first inkling of of renewal, if you will. The harvest has come. She's met Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And, And the way that it's languaged here, he's an older man. He's probably a little bit older than than Ruth is. And he says to her, Daughter, he takes away the identity of a foreigner and he refers to her as a daughter. Do you, do you celebrate this morning that God has given you a new identity? You are not what your parents said about you. You are not what, a, what your boss says about you. You are not what a grandparent has done to you in the past. You are not your sin and you are not the sin that's been committed against you. You are a child of God. You matter immensely to him. He shed his blood to redeem you into the family, to pay for you. How dare we walk around depressed as if if something is wrong with us. Nothing's wrong with you. Now that you're a Christian, you've been made completely new. And you've been given a new name. The Bible even says that in heaven, that that new name, we don't even know it until we get there, and then he's going to reveal it to us. What do you think your name will be? You know, people, kids used to say, Messy Jesse. That's not my name. Don't say it to me after church either. Because you will. I had some other nicknames in high school. Can't repeat them here. 
That's not who I am. Right? Kids can be cruel with those kind of things. You're not that. What will your name be? And you'll be shocked by it, I think. Those of you who are cowardice, God will come to you and say, I name you courage. I don't know what your name is, but I know that there's something about you that God will reveal to you, and you'll go, man, I wish I would have seen that more clearly. But my job this morning is for you to walk around at least knowing that you have a a solid identity in Jesus Christ. Stay close. You're my daughter. Verse 9, keep your eyes on my field. Stay focused. Be about my business. Don't don't allow yourself to get drifted into another direction. And verse 9, he also says, I will protect you. I will guard you. I will keep those men from harming you. And then he says in verse 9 as well, I will feed you. He gives her the, the leftovers. He gives her more food. He gives her water. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 12, 3? With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy. God tells us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Someone said to me this morning after the service, thank you for the feast. Thank you for sharing God's word. Some of you come on Sundays because you just, you know your soul needs food from heaven. And isn't he good at giving it to us? Don't go anywhere else. Know your identity. You're my daughter. Stay here. Keep your eyes on my field and I will feed you. What is the right response to that for you as a Christian this morning? There's a proper response and a right question. When you understand the saving grace of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, there's a proper response and the right question. When you understand the goodness of God in your life in spite of you, there's a proper response and a right question. And Ruth has both. Verse 10, she bowed down. She humbled herself. The proper response for any Christian who understands their salvation is to sing. It's to cry out. It's to say thank you. Not to demand more from God, but to say, God, you are good. That's why on Sundays, you know, Brad Knoll does a tremendous job. When we, the songs we sing are strategically sung to not be songs that when you sing it, you can't go, was that about, was that about a guy or a girl or was it about God? Do you know what I'm saying? You know, when you sing a song, there's some Christian songs Notice the Christian song. That when you sing them, if you didn't know you were in church, you'd be thinking you were singing about, it was a love song about some other dude or some other gal. You know what I'm saying? I'd give you an example, but I don't sing. So when Brad chooses songs, he chooses songs that that are legitimately based in the reality of, of when we sing, we know we're singing to God. Yeah? You should say amen to that because, and here's why because it makes me feel good when you do it. Uh, and also, because, because you know in your heart, you have to say, like, man, the leadership here wants to make sure that you're driven to the cross of Jesus and nothing else. Not your emotions, not your biases, but to Jesus. And so when we sing, we, we know we're singing to Jesus. Not to Bill or Sue, whoever they are. You might love them, but the song's not about them. The song's about the glorious of Jesus Christ. The proper response is to cry out. And then the right question is what she says here in verse 10 as well. Why have I found favor? There should be something in regards to your salvation for every single one of you. When you think of the goodness of God, you should ask that question. Why in the world have I found favor? I'm a foreigner, she says. You see, she, she sees this new identity that is being given by Boaz, but she's still wrestling with her old identity. She, she's a foreigner. But she doesn't understand why, why Boaz is giving her favor. And there should be a part of you that doesn't understand why God would give you favor. But, but I can tell you this, he doesn't give you favor and love because of something you have done. You cannot earn this You cannot work for it. You can't put enough money in the offering boxes in the back. You can't say enough prayers. You can't serve enough. You can't be good enough to your neighbor. You can't be enough of a truth teller. The whole reason the Ten Commandments exist is so when you read them, you go, I can't do it. It's the whole purpose of them. You go, well, who can? Jesus can. 
And the Bible answers the, the reason of why you found favor. You found favor because he loves you. That's it. That's it. I don't know what happened other than God's spirit with my wife when all of a sudden the veil was lifted. I love her. I can't tangibly tell you why I asked her to marry me. I just loved her. I can't tell you why I didn't decide to, to hold off on something else or, or, or to see what my options are. I, don't, I couldn't tell you. I just know that God was at work behind the scenes moving in my heart because I love her. And for some reason, for some reason, Boaz is out in the field and he sees something in Ruth. He wants to redeem her. And Jesus sees something in you. It's his affection and it's his love. And he says, I want to bring you into the family of God. I want to make you a co-owner of the field. I want to work alongside of you. And I want you to be a part of my meta-narrative of redemption. Isn't that glorious good news? That's the gospel. And we should sing and we should continually ask the Lord in gratitude, why have I found favor? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that this tiny little love story between a man and a woman point us to the glorious truth of who Jesus is. We thank you for Boaz, Lord, being a generous, honorable, strong man to save Ruth, Lord, that, that through his child, Lord, we would be given a Savior. I pray this morning that we would respond in gratitude to your saving grace, that we would say thank you, Lord, and that we would have that question in our minds. Why have I found favor? And we would hear, Lord, your love to our hearts. Sing to us, Lord, your love as we sing to you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.